Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. Hi everyone, as you can hear, I am, as many of you I'm sure are as well, suffering with a little bit of a winter bug, but I'm absolutely fine, I promise, to record what I hope is going to be a really exciting episode and the first time we have done this. So today we have reached that point in the year where we're all looking back at the last 12 months and maybe doing some reflecting on what a year 2023 has been. Now for the podcast, we wanted to do the same. We wanted to reflect and look back and draw upon some of the learnings that we have really enjoyed over the last 12 months. We have recorded 50 episodes so far. We have started releasing bi-weekly episodes with my new Ask Alice episodes, which I've absolutely loved. We've had over a million downloads and we've also covered some really important subject matter. And I really hope that you found all of the episodes beneficial, informative and enjoyable. Now this week felt like the perfect time to look back at our amazing back catalogue and I have picked out some of my favourite moments for you to listen to that you might have missed from this year. So let's start with one of our most popular episodes from Dr. Hazel Wallace, who is also known as the food medic, who brought her expertise to the podcast as a doctor and nutritionist and who shared with me her experience of IVF and finding happiness in her personal life. There was a particular moment where Hazel got quite emotional discussing her own personal growth. When I was single, I... I guess a lot of women like really like found a soul sister in me and they were like you know she's really like flying the flag for independent women and I wasn't trying to be that at all you know I was I was very comfortable I was the last single best friend in my friendship group and I was fine by that I was fine with being the cool aunt and just like you know floating in floating out and I knew that when I was ready I'd find my person but I was very comfortable on my own I used you know I've I used to go on solo holidays all the time, solo trips. It's not something I found difficult. And I lived by myself for a long time. I love my own company. Um, and I think for a lot of women who are single, they just, you know, found that really empowering and, and it maybe inspired them to book that trip by themselves or buy flowers on a Friday for themselves and those little things. And I still do those things by myself, um, even though I'm in a relationship. But I guess when I met David he's a creator as well so he's online and naturally then your content kind of blends together um and for us it feels very natural and very authentic there's like nothing staged if you ever see us together we are exactly how we are online um he's quite literally my best friend but I think for some people they see that and they think well Hazel's left me behind or Hazel's just found her happiness because she's in a relationship or they think that that's what I'm saying and I found my happiness and my contentment far far before I met David and he just adds to it and I know that if we broke up in the morning which would be horrible I would still land on my feet I would still have my business I'd still have my friends I'd still have my life and I guess because I feel so happy and in sync with him it just feels natural to share that journey with people but unfortunately for some people it's jarring for most people they love it but for some people they think it makes me unrelatable because I'm no longer that single girl I think it's hard 
being online in that perspective. And I, and I totally hear what you're saying that I think sometimes people can really love to see the struggle. I spoke about this with another guest of mine recently, that there's something about, uh, you know, the communities that we create online, that they love the struggle. They love the vulnerable sides of us. They love the personal challenges because it's relatable. And I totally get that. But you know, it's actually harder for us in some ways to celebrate people being genuinely happy. I'm not saying everyone, that's a massive generalization, but I think I've definitely noticed even in, in my own content, you know, I, I have this girl message me last week and she was supposed to be messaging her friend, having a bitch about me putting up something about Paddy. And she was like, oh my God, isn't this awful? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I was like, hi, you've sent it to me. But I do think there's something that that, that we find hard about seeing people being genuinely happy and, and, and almost that, that that can be challenging for some people and confronting, I guess. So I saw you post recently about saying something about someone someone messaging messaging around that. And I just found that almost really relatable myself because I felt the sting of people kind of, I guess, celebrating you when you're down, but also then not when you're up. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Like, I mean, I had a few messages and one of them explicitly said that they preferred me when I was sad. <laughs> And, you know, I was in a, an extremely dark place to my own admission two or three years ago. And I was probably um, what I thought I was keeping it under wraps, but I think I was a lot more like open about it and people were very aware of it because I was really struggling. Um, and I guess if you too were going through a hard time, you feel less alone because someone you're watching on social media is going through that as well. And it kind of normalizes it or there's like a glimmer of like kind of, I don't know, this kind of support network in a way. Um, and while me going through that and coming out the other side, some people who are still maybe struggling have said, oh, it's so nice because I have that, you've kind of given me hope that there's something on the other side. Whereas some people have said, in so many words, you've kind of left me behind and now I've got no one to relate to. And, you know, that's hard for some people, but also on social media, like, no one's asking you to follow that person. You cannot please everyone. You cannot relate to everyone. If you related to everyone or if you people please for everyone, you would be the most neutral on the fence person, the most boring content and nothing to say. I completely agree. And also like you don't owe it to anyone. You don't owe anyone anything. Like, you know, I, yeah, I had to do a lot of work on that. I feel like people pleasing is such a big part of who I am. And it, and it is really hard to, to drop that and to try and carve out like who am I what do I like because we spend so much of our time doing stuff for other people I totally get that but um mm. but look I think from from my perspective and I'm sure so many others it's been really lovely to see and I genuinely love like all of your kind of um you know happy videos together and it's you know so so nice so keep doing it please <laughs> and Thank then part, part of your relationship I guess and sharing that online was to share your egg freezing journey which I know was hugely important for people that you know I've spoken to privately I've, I've had conversations about your content and referred people to your content because I know that that was so useful you know doing that publicly and and, and sharing that journey so what was it like doing that and taking your audience through that process I mean it's 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 a nerve-wracking thing right and kind of what led you to the point of, of making that conscious decision to do it I decided to do it last year I was thinking about doing it anyway like pre-David and then I made up my decision I'd done my research I'd spoken to people and then I spoke to David and I said like this is something that I want to do and it was quite early into our relationship so well like a year and he was just like I think this is a great idea because I'm also not ready to have children and like based on 
our vague plans, it just seemed like the right decision to make. And I had my AMH tested, which is kind of a level or a loose marker of how many eggs you've got left. Um, And mine was quite low. So it was a now or never thing for me. So I went on the whole journey. It started last January, January just gone. And I kind of completed all the stimulation injections and the egg collection in April. And I did everything, documented everything, but shared nothing online because I wanted to go through it myself and then decide whether it was something I wanted to share. And like, God forbid anything bad went happen, would would happen and then I'd have to share that. So I was like, just get through it and then make a decision. And I've learned about IVF and egg freezing through medical school, but going through it as a patient was wildly different. There were so many unexpected things like from practical things like just how much like time you have to commit to it, but also things like unexpected costs. And then I think I underestimated how my body would feel, how my body would change. Like I had to do two weeks of estrogen priming, which was tablets three times a day before starting my stimulation injections. And then I started my stim injections, but they have to be like at the same time every day. And I was doing that like six, seven o'clock in the evening. But there were some days that I was doing like speaking events or whatever and I'd be taking my injections and doing them in the bathroom and it was just it made me really realize how difficult this is for people who go through rounds and rounds of IVF and for people who do it on their own like technically I was kind of doing it on my own but David just like went into full-on support mode where he was just like wanting to do the injections always checking in on me and it was when we were at home I had the egg collection in Ireland and it was when we were at home during that time that he asked my mum if he could marry me because I think for him it really was a bonding experience for us it was really challenging in so many ways but also I'm just really relieved that I I've done it and it's done and you know I may do another round or another cycle but I think for now I feel like good with what I've done um and the feedback from people has been mostly positive like women who are going through it and found that really useful but I'm also very privileged to be able to afford to do this myself. I really love Hazel's honesty there. And I sort of feel like for me, because she's such a a polished professional online, it was such an amazing opportunity to have the podcast where I kind of felt like I saw, um, you know, a slightly different side to Hazel. And I really felt like we connected and just had this really meaningful conversation. So that was definitely one of my highlights from the year. Now, next up, we have someone who I can only describe as sunshine in human form. It's someone who I've got to know really well over the last year. And that is Cherry Healy. I absolutely adore Cherry. I adored this conversation. And within it, Cherry highlighted to me the importance of kind of working on yourself and never comparing yourself to others from what they share on social media. I feel like Cherry is that little bit further along in life and has a bit more experience to kind of, I guess, pass down. And I felt like this conversation really was like a big hug from a friend. So this is one of my favorite clips from it. I'm doing some really interesting work on myself at the moment. I mean, I'm determined to get this down. And, you know, this is a really interesting chapter. I'm 42. I've done various things in my career. I've got two gorgeous kids. I feel really lucky. You know, I've managed to black bag myself a house listen all these things but what I've realized is I still suffer from a feeling of inadequacy and not enoughness and what I've realized is it will never because 
I think I do seek validation externally, it will never be enough, ever. It will never be enough. If Cherry 10 years ago could look at me now, she'd be like, oh my God, that's so exciting. You, you've had TV work for 12 years, 15 years. No, like you've actually been employed in that you've bought a house. You've bought a house. Oh my God, that's so exciting. I would have been, and yet daily and sometimes all through the day, I have a sense, I can have a sense, you know, some days I feel like a badass bitch, of course. However, <laughs> I'm interested that at the place I'm at, I would have mm. thought that I would have peace. I would have a strong sense of self-worth. And of course, that, yeah, like I, there are days when I really, really do, but I'm interested that it's not this, it's not like you wake up when you go, oh, I'm I'm just amazing and I've done everything I want to do. You really don't. You're absolutely still susceptible to huge self-doubt and yeah. worry. And so the work that I'm doing on myself now is to, as much as possible, to not seek external validation, but to validate myself. It's an inside job. You clearly know what I'm talking about. But that is a yeah. daily decision. It's almost like I'm trying to hypnotize my subconscious currently to feel at peace. There's always going to be someone who's got more than me. There's always going to be someone who's got more shows, more money, a big, you know, there are some people that look at me and think you're 42 and you're single. The freedom there to do what you want to do and not have to be in a relationship that's actually really tricky and difficult. You know, I'm lucky that I have lovely friends and my, my relationship, you know, with my kids, family and all of those people involved is really happy. Like it's a really... So yeah, I'm. There are so many reasons to feel grateful, free, and at peace with whether where I am at life, and yet that fucking gremlin gets me on the regular. And I realise that if I can find a way to get rid of that, I think the happiness and peace that I feel with life will be really quite wonderful. And and you know what? Let's go into that because you know what I think, you know, it's just just when you were talking then so much was coming up for me in the sense that you were talking about 12 years ago, Cherry would be like, oh my God, how amazing. Oh, about everything you've done, which I completely agree with. But I I have grown up pretty much in the age of social media. Every success that I've ever achieved, I've posted about online. And that is totally and utterly because I want other people to tell me how great I am I'll own that like I will own that but like I think that when we think about life previously and particularly you know first of all I I will never ever ever believe that you're 42 I just cannot what the hell (laughs) I'm so glad that this is not envisioned because I thought no makeup Pretty much, no, I've you, just been running around the house doing long. But listen, yeah, it's a really interesting time in life. But you look amazing. But what I would I say is, you. you you grew up in a time where if, if something happened to you, you'd ring your mom and say, "Mom, like uh, you know, I remember when I first got my first um, job in a musical. I remember ringing my the first idea was I rang my mom and I said, "Mom, oh my god, I got this job!" and like crying and that <laughs> that feeling. And it and it wasn't about validation; it was about sharing that news with the people that would genuinely yes. be happy for you. And I'm not saying the online communities can't have that same reciprocal feeling of, of caring about what you do but it, it's almost as though like we have we have more of a point to prove now we, we yeah. you know a, anything happens to anyone you know about it I see my friends I'm like I know what you've been up to I know what you've achieved because I see beast. it all online yeah and it's a beast that needs to be fed 
daily. And that's another thing that's really, and, and you know, we talk about earlier about society changing, constantly evolving, mm. changing, which is why the conversations are so interesting to hear unpick what's going on one of the things that's going on is there's a beast that needs feeding daily and we're not making that up the algorithm will punish you if you do not post daily and i've been i mean i would happily post two times a week things that i really care about but actually well i do i love posting and i love engaging but i am consciously aware that it's like an abusive relationship because some days you don't want to you can go through heartbreak disappointment, sadness, grief, all those things, or just be feeling really peaceful mm. and really quiet and contained and just content. But you need to keep feeding that beast. And I think it's it changes your cognitive function. Yeah. Because whilst I'm very aware that peace and contentment is an inside job and it's about that gratefulness and groundedness every single morning that goes through your day, I am still juggling the beast that needs to be fed. So how do you, how do those things, and that's what I'm trying to work at the moment. How can we live in a world where you're a public person and you have to feed the beast or you want to feed the beast and have inner peace? I feel like there was so much that I took from that conversation with Cherry that I genuinely applied to my life. Like I felt she just came with such wisdom and there were so many things that I was like, oh, real aha moments. So yeah, I absolutely loved that conversation. Now moving on to an expert that we had on the podcast and it was Dr. Anjali Marto, who is an incredible dermatologist and friend of mine. Now in this episode, we discussed how I was looking to start my journey with isotretinoin, which is also known as Rakutane, and how there isn't one size that fits all when it comes to dealing with acneic skin. I found this episode to be one of those that I really kind of bookmark as a helpful episode for people who might not necessarily be able to access a dermatologist straight away or who are maybe on like a wait list and they can't get access or get the answers that they need. One of the things that we really try and do with the podcast is bridge the gap between, you know, the experts who maybe feel like they're a bit out of reach for some people and the people that are really looking for that information or that answer to their problem. So having someone like Angelion, who's a top dermatologist, was just such a brilliant way to be able to get that information and be able to package it up so that it can be made accessible to anyone who's listening. So this episode was brilliant and I really hope that you find this clip helpful. One thing that I really valued in our first session was that I came to you saying, I think I want to take isotretinoin. And actually the thing that you did, which I found so helpful was you didn't just say, okay, yes, here's a prescription. You said, well, let's talk about all of your options and really going through those and really understanding why each one might be right and potentially not right, and really laying out on the table all of the options that are available to me for the place that I presented. And and I'll, you know, for full disclosure, my case was acne that didn't respond to any other treatment, and then also acne that was causing me real kind of discomfort in myself, and I was very incredibly self-conscious of it. So I think that that's such an important part of that communication with a practitioner, with a dermatologist, you know, say someone is listening to this and thinking that that might be the route to really go in with a broad and open mind and just kind of listen to their dermatologist, give them hopefully different choices. And it really come down to that personal perspective. And just, you know, I I sat there and weighed up all my options and realized that for me personally, isotretinoin was the route that I wanted to go down, but that there were options if that wasn't as well. And I think that's really good to know. I agree. And I think the other thing is setting realistic expectations as well, because sometimes I could see somebody and they may have very severe acne. And when I say severe, we're talking medical definition of severe, lots and lots of inflammatory lesions on their skin, but they may not want to take the medication. And that's totally reasonable to say, I don't want to take that drug. What are my other options? 
But then it's also my job to say, these are your other options. It may be less effective, but if this is what you want to try first, you do so, rather than set up this expectation of the other options may or may not work as well. So I think that's where that patient education part of it is so key, so you can make the right decision for yourself. And on that point, let's dig into that a little bit. The efficacy of of isotretinoin is, is pretty good. Could you talk about how well it works versus a couple of other options that people might know. I mean, I know when we had that conversation and you were very realistic about what each option might look like in terms of results. Could you dig into that a little bit? Yeah, that's right. So with isotretinoin, it is the most effective medication that we have for acne. So despite the bad press that it gets, and I'm sure we will come on to talk about that later, the drug is still around because it works. The drug has been around since the early 1980s. So we've got nearly 40 odd years of safety data on the medication We know short, mid and long term what to expect, what those side effects are. So from a practical point of view, you know, I always think with people when they start the medication, the things that you need to be aware of is, yes, there are side effects. But with regards to those side effects, a lot of those can be managed, provided you get the right information. And I think the other thing is a lot of people will say, oh, but I've done a course before or I've I've been on it before. or I know people that it hasn't worked for and it's come back. And I think what I would say there is when it comes to actually taking the medication, target dosing of the medication is really important. And that target dosing is based on an individual's body weight. And if you do not hit that target dose that you need for your weight, there is a chance that it will come back. And that chance is much, much higher of recurrence than if you get to the point that you need to. So often I find people that may have done a course or two in the past, they come and see me and say, It worked, but then it came back again. But when I start digging into their history and their story a little bit more, what I find out is they never got anywhere near taking their target in the first place. So it's not surprising that it came back in the future. That's really good to know. There are other sort of prerequisites to taking isotretinoin. One of those is the need for contraception, blood tests. Could you talk through what those look like? So the data has changed over the years. So if you had taken isotretinoin a decade ago or two decades ago, The monitoring that we do is slightly different now. And it's actually, in some ways, the blood tests are a little bit more relaxed than what they used to be. But generally speaking, what I and the majority of practitioners will do, and there will be minor variations depending on who you see in the UK, but what you would do is get a blood test done before you start at baseline. And that blood test normally looks at your blood count, checks your liver, your kidneys are working properly. We also keep an eye on the fats in your blood, so your cholesterol, your lipids, And then we have to do a pregnancy test on every female patient that we have. We also then do a blood test at the end of the first month and at the end of the second month of treatment. So we're usually talking three blood tests if things go to plan and there are no problems over a six-month course, which is usually about average if people tend to take a higher dose of the medication. Now, prior to that, the blood tests used to be much more frequent. And I certainly remember years ago when I took it, I was having blood tests nearly every month. And the data now shows that's probably a little bit of overkill in that way. Pregnancy tests on female patients are essential, um, and that is NHS or private guidelines. We require pregnancy tests monthly. We have to document them on the prescription monthly, or the pharmacy will not issue the drugs. And actually, to that point, Anjali, um, I wanted to talk about my personal situation. I'm very happy to be open about this, but 
going on to contraception wasn't something that I wanted to do. And, and I discussed that openly with you. And we did go down a slightly different route. And I wondered if you could maybe explain how that might work for someone who is also in a similar position to me and doesn't want to go into contraception and what therefore their treatment plan might look like. Yeah, I think this is an interesting question, actually. And again, this is where there will be variation, um, particularly NHS and privately, and between practitioner to practitioner as well. I see a lot of women that don't want to go on hormonal contraception, can't go on hormonal contraception, and I certainly don't force the issue. So we are able to do something called opt you out of the pregnancy prevention program. So essentially a waiver to say, you're an adult, you understand the risks, the medication, if you were to go on it, has the potential to damage an unborn baby. So, you know, you take as many precautions as you can, barrier methods where necessary. But the point is there are ways and means around that if contraception isn't appropriate or people don't want to take it. So as you can hear from that conversation, it just kind of opens up a broader opportunity to be able to hear from experts like herself who can give you those answers to things that you might be like, oh, you know, I can't really go to my GP for that question. Or, you know, you might be starting Rakuten and just wanting a little bit more information. So I'm really happy that we were able to get Angela on. And actually, she's someone who I'd love to earmark to do a kind of updated episode for next year, because I've recently gone on a little bit more of a kind of wedding prep skin journey with her. So if you're interested in hearing about that, then we will make sure we try and do an episode on that for 20. 24. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. Now, my next guest and the next clip that we've chosen is from someone who, again, like I've picked big sunshine people, but Peloton instructor Hannah Frankson was such a highlight for me. In the episode, we discussed um, about her identity crisis that she had, you know, coming off the back of being a professional athlete, having to then go into like, you know, a complete career change, basically, and how she found success in showing her authentic self personally and professionally. We all know that Peloton is a huge brand and to get in and to, and to you know, create a place for yourself like Hannah has is really hard. And she, you know, she discussed in the episode how she auditioned for over a year to get to that point. So it was a really inspiring episode. For anyone that's in the fitness industry, I, I particularly recommend this one. And this is one of my favorite clips from it. When I was doing my research for this podcast, I always try and listen out if there are any podcasts that you've been on before. And I was having a little listen to another one you'd done where you talked about this kind of identity crisis and talked about some personal stuff that you'd gone through that was really challenging that kind of, I guess, aligned with that same time as leaving the sport and and having to pivot in terms of your whole life and, and where you saw it going. And I wondered if you could share a bit of that with me. I was working at a gym and I'd started doing all my indoor cycling and it was going really well. I feel like sometimes if you don't let one failure go, they start to compound. So I feel like leaving athletics, I was carrying around this ego of of like having failed, but I wouldn't let anyone know that. I would always walk around big bad, go into the gym still and strut around, pick up the heaviest weights I could. It's like, look, I'm an ex-athlete. Look how strong I am. That, and people would still say to me like, oh, you look like, an, like, what do you do? You look like you do a sport. And I'd be like, yeah, I used to do triple jump. It was kind of like, I hadn't really let it go. That felt like a failure. Then I met someone after I stopped doing athletics and it felt like that was the replacement. So it was like, I've left athletics, didn't succeed in that, but now I'm going to have this perfect life. I'm going to meet someone. We're going to be together. We're going to have kids and it's all going to work out. So I left athletics at the right time because this was meant to happen because this is what life is meant to be. This is it. This is life. 
<laughs> so when that started to fall apart, I was like, oh man, I kind of had these two big failures that I hadn't, like, I hadn't really dealt with the first one, like leaving athletics. And I kind of just masked it with this relationship. And then when that fell apart, I was like, wow, it felt like the first time I really had to like face myself. And it was the first time, obviously with athletics, no one can, no one really knew how I was feeling on the inside. With the relationship, it felt like everyone could see it. Everyone could see it fall apart. And I've, the, the ego in me couldn't couldn't deal with everyone being able to see it. No one actually cares, by the way. Like if, if you're with someone or not, it's none of their business. It's no one else's business. But um, I, I thought it was, at the time, it's all I had is like people's opinions and what people thought. So when they saw that break down, I think that's when I really completely just let go of having like any form of ego. I was like, right, people have seen me fail massively. And I'm in this room with all these people. They're all, they're all cycling with me. They're all looking at me and I've really got nothing. Like when I tell you nothing to lose anymore, I've got nothing to lose. I've got nothing, like no, no ego is going to save me anymore. They all, they all know what's happened. So I felt like it was the first time I really was like, let's just be ourselves. Let's just be ourselves. Let me just be myself, like wholeheartedly be myself. And that is when I started to see more people start to come to my classes. I think some of the things that I started to say in my classes resonated with a lot of people, but I feel like I was really just saying out loud what I needed to hear myself. So it would be like, don't let anyone stop you from achieving your dreams just because things don't go right. Doesn't mean you can't start again. You're so amazing. But it was like, I was talking to myself. I needed to hear it myself, but I was sharing it with a room and it just started to work more and more. I saw my classes get more, more and more full. Then you go to wait list and then your confidence grows. And then it's just like, yo, I'm confident in being myself because I'm getting back to while I'm being myself. And it was just like, a, it just kind of snowballed together. So yeah, it was, it, it was a funny little journey. Like I didn't know it would get me to where I am today, to be honest. Out of the lowest lows often come the highest highs. And I honestly, I truly believe that. And I always think in the moments where I felt at that low point, that I'm just like, something's coming. There's a hill coming where I'm going to be on another high. And I know that it's there and I know that it's in sight. But it's really hard to believe it when you're at the bottom and you've got that hill to climb. And I think that um, what sounds like what worked for you and why I love that story so much is you leaned into your vulnerability. And I think that one of the biggest things that I've learned, you know, I've been a personal trainer for almost 10 years. I think that the biggest thing that connects me with my clients and with my people that I'm working with is you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable. Nobody wants to walk into a room and see someone with this armor up where they're like, you know, I am gonna train you until you are sweating your tits off and you know whatever like it just it doesn't connect and actually like what it sounds like you did and I think you know from from what I see from you online and stuff I think you let your guard down and you let yourself be that vulnerable person who is flawed and has emotions and has good days and bad days and you know me myself I'd way rather show up to someone's class who's like that who's gonna give me their complete honesty and who I'm going to be able to connect with on that deeper level and, and want to work hard for rather than someone who's, you know, the drill master who's just telling me what to do. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. And I really think you should honor that in the terms of that's a really hard thing to do in front of a room of people, um, Hannah. And the fact that you were able to do that is is amazing. It really is. And like, you know, I think that we we often overlook how powerful exercise can be in healing from a lot of stuff you know, and I think that um, 
it sounds like it is a big part of your journey. To me, it, it is my journey. Like that's that 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 moment in time for me will be so special. Like I can look back at the playlists that I did. I kept them all like in my Spotify, and it's almost like a diary. Like the songs I was I was picking were like <laughs> they were the songs I needed to hear in that moment. But I feel like what where I was so lucky is I got to shit. Like you said, like it's healing, but it's healing together. So you're in a room together, and some people feel really good when especially like with group fitness you're in a room and some people feel really good and some people feel really really rubbish at that time and you're all coming together and it's like if you're feeling amazing that day you're 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 passing that amazing energy over to the people who aren't feeling great who need that energy like I've really felt that in my group fitness classes like in my indoor cycling classes I really felt like I never ever left the room feeling worse than when I got in I I always left feeling better genuinely don't know where I would where I would have been or what would have happened if I hadn't have found that particular little indoor cycling world I genuinely don't know what would have happened to me I just love hearing stories of success that aren't necessarily the traditional route and I loved Hannah's journey to I guess seeing where she is now and it's such a joy to follow her on Instagram and kind of see the you know, the place that she is in now where she's so happy and so accomplished, but being able to work back from that on the podcast with her and talk about that journey was, was just brilliant. And it kind of shows you that everyone's got a story and everyone's got a path that maybe isn't necessarily linear in the way that you might think. My next guest was someone who we tried to get on the podcast for a long time. So when it came through, I was just absolutely over the moon. The incredible M. Clarkson was a guest more recently, and she discussed her thoughts and feelings after having a baby and how important it was to be kinder to herself about her body image. You know, Em's someone who I followed for a long time on Instagram. And I think that the way that she navigates talking about body image and, um, you know, postpartum life and just so much else that she is able to kind of navigate in such an articulate and brilliant way is amazing. And, and, And again, one of the reasons why I absolutely love following her. And I felt like we tried to distill all of this into an episode. Now, there are so many favorite moments in this episode that we could have picked, but we could only choose one. So this is the one that we've selected. I haven't had a child yet, so I cannot speak from experience, but I do recognize that I think particularly, if I'm coming at it from a fitness industry perspective, it's a moment where um, both social media advertising and kind of the general media itself really preys on a woman when she's in her most vulnerable state, you know, post-birth, feeling completely disassociated, I guess, from the body that she once had. Um, and I wondered how you kind of navigated that journey because I I see so much that is targeted at new mums and um, this whole idea of the bounce back and the, the speed at which people kind of get back into clothes. And I think it's exacerbated by uh, the fact that we have insight into thousands and thousands of mothers now versus maybe just you know being able to engage with our social group back in the day so I just wondered how you found that and you know particularly in the world of social media being exposed to other mothers who might have had you know had babies at a similar time to you and their journeys and kind of it just must be such a head fuck so I love to hear like how you found it it is a massive head fuck because in the immediate I was really surprised right in the immediate aftermath when she was born because I was like I had a cesarean which isn't what I wanted necessarily but whatever but aside from that I had a really positive experience and 
I mean, it's like kind of brutal and extraordinary, but overwhelmingly really positive for me. And I was so in awe of my body those early days. I was like, holy shit, like, look what I did. This is mad. Like, it's like, there's a human. And I still look at her now and I'm like, whoa, like you grew inside me. Like, what the hell? Like, I don't, I can't, like, I can't, I can't make a cake and I've made a baby. Like I've made eyeballs and like she can see out of them. And like, it's just so weird. I had this like massive sense of awe and wonderment for myself. And, you know, your bump doesn't go anywhere. No one tells you that. But like, the, you know, I still looked pregnant for a fair while. And those first few weeks, I just didn't care. I just, having a baby in February was stunning. I just wore jumpers and leggings and I didn't have to, I, I did look at myself actually, because I, I was fascinated to watch the process really of like watching yourself shrink and your uterus going back to normal and well, not even normal, but, you know, shrinking back down. And like, I, I, those early days, I really did look at it without any societal shit in my ear. I was just looking at this thing like, oh my God, this is objectively the coolest thing I've ever seen. But then I guess, and interestingly, I think it's probably not a coincidence that I wasn't online during that time. Um, I did like six weeks off, four weeks off, can't remember if I did a few weeks off. And I think that probably counts for something. Maybe after the, the initial wonderment passes and, you know, you need to start getting your shit back together again. You need, you know, like your partner goes back to work and you've, you've got, you know, the bubble bursts a bit and you've just got to be like, okay, and this is life now. And like, I need to move on. And like a massive part of my life was exercise. And I think getting back into that was really interesting because before I had Arlo, I was not like, I did ultra marathons. I did marathons. Like I was very, and I don't think I realized how fit I was until, and I didn't realize how small I was either. I, you know, had some weird lens on when I looked at myself because in my head I was always like, oh, I'm quite curvy. And then I look back now, I'm like, you're a twig, <laughs> but okay. Um, so I think that was quite interesting. Like, and I, did, I haven't tried to get back into my old clothes and I think only an idiot would try, but I, well, at this point anyway, but I, um, I did at the at the beginning there, you know, beginning of getting back to normal. I did start to struggle a little bit, and it's, it is inevitable. And my friend had a baby two days after me. She's a naturally very slim person, and I did instinctively. I was looking at her, being like, "Oh my god, like she's she's lost weight so much faster than me." And it's like, okay, good for her, <laughs> good for her, good for her. That's not I don't. That's not my. That's not my thing. And and then, but then you know, the more exposed you are to that sort of thing, you know, that's the one person in my real life, and I think that is a good thing about having a baby in a way is well for me I, I didn't do any NCT groups I imagine actually if you do NCT and that sort of thing then you are surrounded by other mothers and you do instinctively compare yourself but then you know I now follow women online who've had babies really recently and some of them have just just looked like they didn't have them and it is crazy from you know but I, I it's what I was saying before I can't look at them and think oh well, it's so easy for you or, oh it's so you know none of those thoughts are positive and it's not I know that it's hard. I know that this stage of my life is the hardest, best, but hardest. So I'm really careful when I look at other people to not project any negativity on them because they are also going through the hardest time of their lives and they're doing it how they know how to do it and how they've got capacity for. And that's great. Like, that's great. It's just not, and I'm doing, I'm doing what I'm doing and I'm doing my best. And I feel really good for having started exercising again. But if I, I, I'm breastfeeding, I'm exclusively breastfeeding my baby. I can't, I can't restrict food. I can't 
curb all the calories. I can't go for hours on a treadmill because I need to keep my baby alive. So, you know, it's at that moment, I really focus on the priority and it's like, do I want a healthy baby? That's yes. (laughs) Yes, I do. So what can I do to, to facilitate that? And it's eat well, and look after myself and in turn I'm looking after her so I think it's yeah catching those moments when you're looking at other people which you inevitably do and comparing yourself to other people also you know there are women like in the fitness industry who've just had babies who trained throughout you know they stopped at 36 weeks had the kid and they were back at six weeks that wasn't me I didn't train throughout my pregnancy because I had HG then I had a cesarean so I didn't get back to it until 12 weeks and even then it was only Pilates and it, I didn't get back to lifting weights until 20 weeks of course I looked I need to be realistic and I think we marketed so much stuff about how easy and bounce back and hop back into the gym and eat this shit or whatever it is but it, you, you know you need to look at the whole picture and my whole picture is definitely indicating that I'm on a very slow journey here and that's okay and I need to be kind to myself. I think having these conversations is is basically one of my favorite parts of the podcast. As I'm sure a lot of you know, you know, I've navigated my own journey with body image and body acceptance, body neutrality. You know, there are so many different terms we can throw around and the podcast offers up this opportunity to be able to have those unique conversations in a way that's just so much more beneficial than I think I'm able to do on Instagram. As much as I love posting on there, you know, being able to have conversations like this with Em and and all the other wonderful people that we've had on, Alex Light being another person, Laura Adlington, you know, we've tried to really make this part of our of our brand and and something that we really try and do well is is to talk about those difficult kind of tricky conversations that we that we have as women where we're really honest about how we feel about ourselves and M showed it here again we've had other examples of it and I really hope that as we continue into next year it's something that we can really make a big focus for us because I think that these conversations are so valuable and I never underestimate how much this can just shift someone's perspective on how they feel about themselves that day maybe for that week maybe that month or even you know lifelong these these conversations can have a big impact and the more we have them I think the better all of us are in in feeling less alone with you know these these things that we might feel about our bodies so I loved having Emma on I loved that clip now for our final clip I wanted to end with this one from my dear friend Charlotte Neer someone who I just have the utmost respect for she is from the charity I Choose Freedom and please note that as a trigger warning in the following clip we do discuss themes of domestic abuse coming into a refuge is a big decision it is not something that anybody would take lightly and honestly it's not something you would do unless you really felt your life was in danger because it is a big thing to do and you know there are it's difficult because we we are a um a support service that is non-judgmental and needs-led and trauma-informed and yet the converse of that is that we do have to have rules and it's not just rules to keep that woman and her children safe it's rules to keep all of the other women and children who are living in that refuge safe and it's rules to keep the staff safe so the way that I kind of think about it and maybe it sounds a bit dramatic is that actually it's a bit like going into witness protection you have to give up a lot because the whole point of going into refuge is to save your life really and to stop you being murdered so you would 
we don't take anybody from in the local area. We have strict criteria about the kind of radius that we would take somebody from. And the reason for that is one, you know, obviously these families are very at very high risk, but you wouldn't want to in the local town bump into somebody that knows the perpetrator or, you know, the perpetrator themselves. So from a sort of practical point of view, it's much, much better that you come from further away. We say a minimum of 25 miles, but actually I would much prefer women to come from a, a much longer distance away. So when from the very first moment, actually, that we have that phone conversation with a woman, we are having that kind of risk assessment is prominent throughout that conversation. So, um, you know, how have you called us? Does the perpetrator have access to your call logs? If you're coming to us, don't stop at a bank. Don't draw any money out because we want to kind of minimise the trail of how how, um, survivors have got to us. Often from that first phone call, we will set up... um, free transport for them. There's a scheme that came out of our documentary, actually, which is called Rail to Refuge. And that is free rail transfer for anybody that needs to access a refuge place. And perhaps there'd be some links, Alice, that we could put in for anybody that might need to use that um yeah so so when they when families come to refuge and it's important to think about children actually i mean younger children of course it's incredibly traumatic but actually where we sort of struggle the most really is with um teenagers you know kind of from about 11 maybe even younger now upwards where they've been ripped away from their friends their family their toys their pets and the most difficult one of all is social media so um helping them and actually the other thing with children as well particularly young people is if they've been in this environment for for a very long time trying to unpick what's happened for them as well and they will have complex feelings because the perpetrator if it's their father they may still love that person despite the things that they've done so um We have to cut off all routes to contact. And the only way children will be able to see their father would be through a family court. Um, And to be honest, we wouldn't really want to facilitate that while the children were in refuge, because, again, that presents all sorts of um, dangers that we can't safely manage. So, yeah, social media, any kind of um, other, you know, I don't know, Snapchat, for example, has got that snap maps where you can see literally the exact location of somebody within meters to where they are. So we have to do a a big sort of digital de-cleanse. And that usually involves giving phones, new phones to the family, which is, you know, a thing we have to fundraise for. Or if anyone's got any great smartphones they want to give us, obviously, we gratefully receive. So yeah, a digital cleanse. Um, and then when they're living in the refuge, it's funny, isn't it? We, t- we say to kids, don't, you know, don't keep secrets. But yet we expect the children at school not to tell their friends that they're living in a refuge. They can't tell them where it is. They can't have their friends back to tea. So if it's their birthday, we, we would organise a party in the refuge, which is lovely, actually. But it's still sad that kids, you know, can't have that normal childhood that they might otherwise have. So, yeah, and women have to give up their jobs and, you know, potentially any education. That is changing slightly, I have to say. One of the really great things that's come out of COVID is this working from home. So there is still a possibility now for women going into refuge that they would carry on working 
from home remotely. But to be honest, the amount of trauma that that woman's going to be dealing with when she arrives at refuge, it's probably better for her to have a break anyway. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot and there's a huge amount of, it's not just a roof over their heads. People have this image of a grim place, but actually it's not, it's beautiful. But we, it's not just housing, it's to do with, you know, therapy. So we employ, you know, qualified psychotherapists for the women, for the adolescents. We've got play therapists on the team. So six months probably sounds a long time to be living at that refuge, but the amount of stuff that gets done and setting that family up with a whole new life, new schools, new jobs, new education, new GP, new friend groups, you know, all of that takes time and we'll do all of that. So it's really setting them up a new life free from abuse. Oh God, I've literally got goosebumps. And and look, I I've seen it firsthand. I I know when I first came, I don't know what I expected a refuge to look like. I think that's a really important thing for us to discuss because I know that many people that are listening here will have no experience of a refuge, thankfully, and won't even know what it looks like. What does it look like? Um, you know, I remember when I came to yours, it's a beautiful house. You could walk past it and you'd never know that that was a refuge. And I know that there's some locally to me that I'd walk past and I'd never know that, 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 you know, however many women were living there and it was such an incredibly supportive environment because the whole point of it is it's supposed to be undiscoverable. But I think that it's really important that you drove home the point there that it's a lovely environment. It's not grim. It's actually full of, and I said this last time I came to visit, I remember saying it on Instagram stories, it is full of joy, love, fun, community. Uh, and I'm sure, Charlotte, and I, I know that there are going to be times when it's incredibly grim and it's hard and it's difficult. And I don't doubt that for a second. But knowing you and knowing where you position yourself, I know that, you know, the experiences that I've had seeing it are wholly positive. And I think it's really important to talk about that. You know, it's not just, you know, as, as much as everything that you detailed there is so difficult to even imagine. You know, if I think having to uproot my life now, cut off all contact with people that I once did, you know, it's it's such a huge thing, but it's not, um, well, firstly, it is, as you said, to save someone's life, which we have to remind ourselves of. You know, I think that w- when we spoke, you sort of said the, the people that come into refuge are those who find themselves at, at risk of, you know, there's a, a threat to life. Um, and that tends to be who you have in the refuge. But also, you know, that that, that it's if they come to a place where it's so full of joy and love. And I think um, it would be lovely to hear about, you know, what you guys, you've talked about kind of, I guess, the more um, st- structural things that you put in, like the psychotherapy, the trauma-informed stuff, but also the other side, the community aspect, the togetherness, the um, bonding that happens between those people that all find themselves kind of in a similar situation. I think actually it's funny because there is an argument um, for self-contained accommodation, you know, nationally, should refugees be communal or should they be self-contained? We've got a mix of both, actually. But the communal refugees, I think the value in those refuges is the peer support. And, you know, often at night, there's a group of women all sitting around when the kids have gone to bed just sharing their stories and supporting each other. If one's had a really difficult day, you know, say, for example, she's had an invite to go to family court, you know, all the other women are rallying around and, and you know, providing that, you know, just that support that you would get from your friends and your family that you're not getting because you're so far removed. And so the value of that, I cannot describe it. It really is 
a wonderful thing. Now, I'm not saying everyone gets on all the time because obviously that would not be logical. So there is a bit of time that's spent sort of mediating when people have fallen out, usually about the cleaning or <laughs> their kids have had a fight. So sometimes, you know, that there is that element of it. But yeah, the, the support that the women give each other is just incredible. And, you know, one of the things <clears throat> that I, I always find incredibly sad is that statistically women are more prone to domestic abuse when they're pregnant and so we often have pregnant women living with us um and again you know that the women will form a bond around this this woman will have baby showers you know and will try and be the family that that woman hasn't got and you know my colleagues have all been birth partners and you know detail it as the most amazing experience ever so it's a very bittersweet you know, experience that it's beautiful and it's joyful, but at the same time, you know, sad that that woman's having that experience in a refuge. I think that if I had to choose a favourite episode, and it is almost impossible to do so because there were so many, but I do think that Charlotte's episode was probably one of my favourites from 2023. You know, the podcast is called Give Me Strength. It's all about resilience and strength and overcoming adversity. And I feel like Charlotte just absolutely exemplifies that. So, really enjoyed that episode and I think it was a brilliant one to end on. I know that that episode was a lot for some people and I know that a lot of people messaged me saying, you know, if they'd like to make a donation to the charity, where could they do so? So as always, and as with the episode that we released, we will put the uh, link to donate to I Choose Freedom in the show notes for you to be able to make a donation should you wish. What an incredible year that was and only a small handful of the amazing guests that we have had on the podcast this year but it was amazing to look back and hear some of those brilliant moments thank you so so much for listening to the podcast this year i will be back this friday for another episode of ask alice so make sure you keep sending in your questions via instagram and email have a wonderful rest of 2023 and bring on a very exciting 2024 i'll see you soon Insanity Group.